Hello and welcome to another episode of Learning Rewired, where leaders are challenged to rethink what, how and why they and their organizations learn. Learning Rewired is proudly presented by Headspring, custom executive development specialists as part of Headspring's commitment to fostering cultures of continuous learning. I am your host, Bevan Rees. It seems we are living in a time of increased polarization. Every day we are reminded of the things that make us different rather than those that connect us. This is a heightened awareness of diversity, but often at the expense of inclusion. What does this mean for organizations, their leaders, and those responsible for fostering positive human and organizational development? With me today to discuss these and other juicy topics is Professor Bina Candola, business psychologist, senior partner, and co-founder of Pern Candola. Recipient of an OBE for his services to disadvantaged people and diversity, I could go on and on. He is also contributing editor of an upcoming book addressing the topic of inclusive leadership. Bina, welcome. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for being in. And perhaps we should start there, Bina. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I drew a little bit earlier a distinction between diversity and inclusion, which is not for everyone always an obvious distinction to draw. Can you perhaps talk me through that? What is the difference between diversity and inclusion? Yeah, I, I once heard the difference described as diversity is counting the numbers and inclusion is making the numbers count. Mm -hmm. So you can have diversity without inclusion mm -hmm. and you can have no diversity but a lot of inclusion. Mm -hmm. So they're related, but they're not the same. Mm -hmm. And so the, the diversity is more about the composition of the people that we have in front of us. And inclusion is what we do with those people. Mm -hmm. So at this age, when I mean, diversity is, for many organizations, often a tick box exercise. What is the result of that when we have this diversity, but no inclusion or less inclusion? I think too often it is a tick box. It, 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 too often it's a tick box exercise. You know, we the organizations will set a target of a required number of X people mm -hmm. and then they won't actually think about what that means in terms of how those people are valued respected trusted involved in the organization and it's a real problem and they're encouraged to do this ironically by uh, by awards mm -hmm. so awards you know and then standard standard if you hit this standard then we'll give you this and actually setting targets is one of the kind of key components of many of these standards and so you're encouraged to go down this route without anybody ever evaluating. Is this, is this the right thing for us to be doing? Mm -hmm. Do you have any examples recently or in your work that you can point to where it hasn't been the right thing to do? Where it's been very clearly shown up that a heightened focus on diversity at the expense of inclusion leads to negative business outcomes? Oh, you, can, you can look at many instances, actually. I'll give, I'll give you a slightly different example, actually, where, where an organization set a target for X number of women in senior leadership and they achieved the target. I was working with the board, the executive committee on this, and a few years later, they found that the number of women had gone down. And they also found that the women they had appointed to those roles were appointing men for the roles beneath them, right? So the women were appointing men, and the men were appointing men. And that's because they had a fundamental misunderstanding about the way the bias operates. So gender bias, for example, men have a bias towards men for leadership roles, and we kind of know that. And that's where a lot of the efforts get concentrated on. And what tends to get ignored, and maybe people don't know, is that women have a bias towards men for leadership roles. So when we start addressing all of the messages about uh, gender bias in organisations to men, that's only 
looking at half the problem. Because <laughs> the other half of the problem is that women have the same bias. Despite what they say explicitly, despite what people say explicitly, women have the same implicit bias towards men that men have. So you point more women to the board with the expectation that they will favour women, which is not solving the problem, actually. It's not making fairness in the organisation any better. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of counterbalancing one bias with another. But the women have the same bias as men, which means that we end up in the same position that we were before. And there was, I'll give you another example. This is more about target setting, actually, mm-hmm. where I was working with a law firm. Uh, it's a well-known uh, law firm. And we looked at the number. So we're looking at why there were a few women as partners. And the partner who was responsible for the diversity program. She was very engaged and very committed to the whole thing. And we were discussing this whole thing about target setting. And she decided not to set targets. Right? And then she told me, but a lot of other things happened in the meantime about how you how you appraise the lawyers, how you look at their contributions, how you balance up keeping an ongoing relationship with a client versus a new business, because new business is always valued more highly. So we looked at all these factors and then created a new set of criteria. Of course, partnership's important because you become an owner of the business. Mm -hmm. And then she told me, she contacted me about three or four years ago, and she said, we've appointed six new partners this year, six new partners this year, and they're all women. Now, no target you would ever set, mm. no target would ever say 100% women. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that, so targets actually become, the, the people consider them to be an aspiration. I consider them to be a ceiling. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, so we want a target of 20%. We want 20% by 2020. I mean, that's kind of a bit of a catchphrase now. But that's it. We want 20%, not 25. Mm-hmm. Well, 25, well, we can't handle that. Definitely not 30. Mm-hmm. And don't even think about 50. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? So actually, yeah. we, we, it, it's all, it all becomes restrictive. And yet, that's what is considered to be good practice. And it's not good practice, it's common practice. And the, the diversity field, we mistake common practice with good practice all the time. So why do we even end up in this situation in the first place? Why do we have this conflict between targets? Why do we even have targets to be set? Why aren't organizations more naturally diverse and inclusive? Well, we have our biases, and that's why organizations are not diverse and inclusive, because we actually have our biases. We have our biases for all sorts of reasons. We have biases on the grounds of gender, ethnicity, age. Age is some of, some of the biggest biases you can find, actually, age-related. So we have these biases. Some we, we will be aware of ourselves. Others are, of them will be hidden even from us, mm-hmm. but they may be apparent to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and also we form in groups. We, we like people like ourselves around us. Mm-hmm. And where we judge people on the kind of, if you might call them, like a superficial kind of dimensions, mm-hmm. that actually means that things like gender and, and ethnicity become quite important. Once you get to know people more, you kind of think, actually, there's more in, there's more in common between us. Mm-hmm than a superficial interpretation of our skin colour, for example, mm-hmm. might make us think. So we kind of naturally do those sorts of things. And then we hold stereotypes, and those stereotypes will make us think, well, there are certain groups who we think are better suited to these type of roles than others. So these type of things are quite insidious. And then they can be kind of years of custom and practice and organisation changing. Those can be, can be hard. Mm-hmm. You can find HR departments who don't want to challenge custom and practice. And actually, they're hard-pressed anyway, so they'll take administrative convenience over a, a more in-depth kind of way of doing things. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a whole range of factors. So that's tough work, isn't it? Addressing, mm. especially the unconscious biases. Yeah, and it is tough work, and that's why we set targets. Yeah. Because it's back to this tick box. Rather than do all the other work, like looking at our processes and training our people Mm. to operate those processes properly, to give each other feedback, to challenge one another, all of these sorts of things, that's hard. Mm -hmm. It's how we set a number Mm -hmm. and we won't achieve it. Yeah. But what is the alternative? (laughs) Well, you you do all the other, you do the hard stuff and you do the stuff which is going to take a long time to to get a result. Because people say to me, well, 
The reason you have targets is they get results. I first came out against targets 25 years ago for a book. And in the book, I said the targets don't work. It's from a psychologist's point of view. Mm-hmm. And people told me, you know, they, they, so people ask me now, because it's, it's becoming very fashionable. 25 years ago, it's been very fashionable. Looked into it, actually found targets for all sorts of reasons that don't work. Right. And people say to me, yeah, but targets, uh, that's a way to achieve results. And uh, I said, well, I first came out against targets 25 years ago. That's how effective they are. Because if they were that effective, we'd have got rid of them 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, you might get a short-term uplift in your numbers, and then it'll go back. But it makes you feel good. And it's become this totemic policy, actually. If you haven't got targets, you're not serious about diversity. Mm-hmm. And if you're anti-targets, you're anti-diversity. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of come one of these policies that uh, it's kind of seen as symbolic that we're serious. And if you're against it, you're actually against diversity itself. So actually you get this, on the one hand, you have to praise it. And, and on the other hand, it's not safe for you to criticize it. I suppose the question there is, what are the results that you are looking for? Exactly. And in terms of the long-term results, I mean, the, the data seems to be really on the side of inclusion, isn't it? Yeah. Moving beyond diversity towards inclusion. Yeah, and, 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 to, and, and to achieve both. Inclusion... Yeah, some of the results on inclusion, uh, I mean, it's almost um, comprehensive. I mean, it's like all of the research points in the same direction. Mm-hmm. That if you create an inclusive environment, that uh, people who say they feel inclu- more included are more, more motivated, more engaged, more productive. Mm-hmm. Right? So actually there's this kind of emotional part of it for individuals who feel included. On average, it's about 85% of people who, who say they feel included are more motivated, more engaged, more productive. It's huge. The, the effect is huge. In addition to that, people who are more included also experience a higher degree of psychological well-being. Mm-hmm. And teams where you have an inclusive team, they are more resilient. So they're more able to recover from setbacks. So all the things organizations talk about, well-being, mental health, and that's mm-hmm. a big issue now, mm-hmm. um, but, and resilience, that's what you get from being inclusive, as well as the the other things about um, motivation, engagement, and productivity. But people want innovative teams. Mm-hmm. We want innovative organizations. Mm-hmm. And there is this, there was a view, innovation is a combination of creativity and implementation. So it's about having ideas and then getting them done. Mm-hmm. And in order to get innovative, and there's been a very strong link, right, a very strong link between inclusion and greater innovation. Mm-hmm. And in order to get innovation, you need trust, security, and you need support. Trust that actually I can raise my ideas, security that I can challenge other people on their ideas, and support to get the ideas implemented, right? And those are exactly the conditions you create when you create an inclusive team. So it's no wonder you get greater innovation with greater inclusion. So is this one of the primary links between diversity and inclusion? It's, it's sounding to me that without that inclusive environment, mm. the real benefits of diversity can't really be accessed successfully. Exactly. Yeah, if the positive number is 85%, the negative figure is 50%. Mm-hmm. So 50% of minorities say they feel they cannot be themselves at work uh, for fear of being judged in a stereotypical way, stereotype, being stereotyped. Something like um, 50% of people who are lesbian or gay in the workplace say they cannot be themselves in the workplace for fear of being judged quite harshly. In fact, it's interesting, there are more people out in universities than there are in the organisations that, that the graduates go and work for. So obviously they don't feel it's safe to kind of be able to talk about this in the workplace. And where women are doing non-stereotypical roles, or non-traditional roles, so women in engineering, for example, huge piece of work done in America, 20% of students studying engineering are female, but only 11% practice. It's a huge drop-off. If you had a drop-off like that for men, it would be a national emergency. And 5,500 women contributed to focus groups interviews as a huge piece of work. And 
employers were asked, because the women tend to leave the profession rather than just the organisation. And the employers were asked, why are you losing so many women? And they say, it's, it's family. Mm. Only 8% of women had left the profession for family or family-related reasons. More than five times that number, close to 50% had left because they felt undervalued, they didn't feel they were respected, and that not enough attention was being paid to their continuous professional development. So these are things in our control. So it's back to that 50% figure. So you, you've got these highly trained, highly capable individuals in your organisation who we, because of the way we're treating them, are choosing to leave because mm. they think it, it, it's just not a profession for them. You, in this upcoming book that you've co-authored and edited uh, with your colleagues at Pern Candola, you discuss specifically inclusive leadership. Mm. What role does inclusive leadership have to play in addressing that particular issue? But we have to recognise that if you want to create an, in, an inclusive environment, that leaders play a big huge part in this actually they set the tone mm-hmm. i think one of the conclusions i've drawn over many years kind of looking at this is that the context is really important the context and the culture and, the, and leaders help establish that they're not the only ones who drive that but actually they they help establish that so actually leaders looking at how they're coming across how they show up in this space is really critical and, and inclusive leadership for us inclusive leadership has three components one is about creating the inclusive culture so creating a sense of psychological safety, for example. Inclusive relationships. So actually, do people feel part of one team? Or through my, let's say I'm the leader, through my behavior, have I created in-groups and out-groups within my own team? Mm-hmm. How do I handle divisions in the team? And the third part of it is fair decision-making. So how do I go about making my decisions? So those three component parts help to, and you want an overlap, an intersection of those three things, and that, that will make an inclusive leader. We spoke earlier about unconscious cognitive biases. Yeah. And those are almost kind of automaton assumptions that we have about the people that we're working with. Mm. What kind of assumptions or beliefs, conscious or unconscious, underpin inclusive leadership? Well, just the way that we, for example, the way we assess performance. Mm-hmm. Right? So the way, the way we assess, of course, once you're in an organization, the way we assess performance then becomes the way of identifying future leaders and the development that they then receive. Mm-hmm. So how do we assess performance? And we think we're objective. Mm-hmm. So I'm very objective in the way that I assess everybody's performance and so everybody gets a fair shake, basically. And we don't. If you've got a man and a woman, for example, just staying with gender just for the moment, if you've got a man and a woman behaving in equally leader-like ways, right, the, a man will be more likely to be described as assertive, task-focused, getting the job done. Mm-hmm. A woman will be described, behaving in the same way, mm-hmm. will be described as aggressive, got sharp elbows and behaving like a man. Mm-hmm. So on the one, it's seen as a positive and the other, it's seen as a negative. Mm-hmm. And we've, I've done work in, in organisations actually where you've got the same description. There was a group of people in a bank in the city and uh, we had, it was an audience of about 150 people. And they were sent to some questions to answer beforehand. The other questions are all kind of spoilers, really, just to uh, distract them a bit. But there was one question which I was really interested in. There was a description of a line manager, right? and it kind of describes this line manager. And uh, asked, how would you, uh, what do you think of this person, and how, to what extent would you like to work for them? And the description was identical, and the names were changed. So one was Harry, and the other was Harriet. And people liked Harry and they wanted to work for Harry. People didn't like Harriet and they did not want to work for her either. So this idea that we're objective in the way that we evaluate people is just, just doesn't bear up. Mm. But how, how we evaluate success varies. So we did some work where it was a, it's a global IT software organisation. Very few women in senior leadership roles. Not unusual in that regard. And they asked us to look into why that was the case. Mm-hmm. And um, 
So we asked the senior leaders, can you describe to us a successful direct report and tell us why you think they're successful? All right, so they did that. And they wrote these descriptions, we took them away, and we looked at them separately for men and women. And we found the men, uh, their, their success was due to their competence, capability, motivation. The women's success was attributed to good team, good boss, and luck. All right? And this is a very common finding, actually. And that, so in, in the jargon, it was an internal attribution for the men. There was something about the men mm-hmm. that made them successful. It was an external attribution for the women. Mm-hmm. It was something in the environment that made them successful. And of course, if that's your starting point, everything thereafter becomes logical. So if I promote this man, everything that makes him successful, he will take with him into the next role. Mm-hmm. His confidence, competence, determination to take the next role. The woman, if I promote her... She will leave her boss behind. She'll leave her team behind. And how long can anybody be lucky? Mm-hmm. So the, the, even things like that start to impact without us actually realizing it's even going on. So is an inclusive leader someone who is less biased or someone who is more willing to engage with the fact that they have natural biases and try to work with them? Yeah, it's more the latter. Um, I mean, they, they may be less biased because mm-hmm. of, they may be the former because of the latter. Mm-hmm. So they may become less biased because they're willing to open themselves up to the fact that I am biased. Is that a process that you actually see, a developmental process, where increasing awareness of your biases basically dissipates them over time? Yeah, it worked with me. (laughs) (laughs) It was a big lesson for me. There's a test you can take. It's developed by academics in America. So it's uh, it's called the implicit association test. You may be familiar with it. It's a rapid decision-making mm-hmm. task. You have to kind of go through it very quickly. And you have to make these decisions very quickly. And I first came across this a decade and a half or more ago. And I took, the first test I took was Asian and white faces and good and bad words. Asian and white faces and good and bad words. I've done that test, yeah. Yeah. And I am a psychologist. It is a science, very logical, very disciplined, very rigorous, analytical. And I work in the diversity field, so I don't stereotype, I don't make assumptions, I don't judge people. So essentially, the fairest person in Britain. <laughs> I thought that when you walked through the Yeah, world. you could tell, yeah, couldn't you? Yeah, I look like it. Britain. Yeah. And uh, I took this test, and it showed I had a bias associating good with Asian people, which never surprises anybody, which really shocked me. Uh, and I did, what, given my background, education and training, I did exactly what you'd expect me to do in the circumstances. I went, okay, best of three. So I did it again. Got the same result. Got the best of five. I got the same I did it three times in a row, and I got the same result three times in a row. I remember walking away from my desk that summer's morning thinking, what a load of rubbish. Mm, mm. I am the fairest person in Britain. I'm the fairest person in Britain. That test didn't valid. That test didn't prove it. So the test must be mistaken. Actually, the events conspired and made me think about it, and I realized I could see things going on around me, actually. Mm-hmm. Where I wasn't on this on this particular dimension, Asian white. I thought, ah, yeah, you're not you're not as good as you think you are. Mm-hmm. And so I had to become aware of my own biases. And I think, you know what, this isn't something about other people. This is about me too. Mm-hmm. And that was a big lesson for me. How was that for you? That lesson. It was painful. Yeah, yeah, because this notion that I may have a bias. I just mm-hmm. focus on this one for the moment. I have others, but this was the first one I focused on. It was a long process of about two or three months where I was thinking I can't be yeah you are well, what about that well that, that was alright that decision was okay that seemed reasonable so was it mm-hmm. what about that person you didn't give them the, you didn't give them the benefit of that did you mm. no um, yeah, it was that and it, I wasn't talking to anybody about this I didn't even talk to my wife about it actually the, 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 no, we co-wrote the book about gender bias together because you kind of feel vaguely ashamed mm. of the outcome and then and now I decided it's better for me to talk about these things and let people know we're all in the same position. And the, the difference being 
and not that some people are biased and others aren't. The difference really is that some people are prepared to acknowledge they're biased, whereas some people don't. Mm-hmm. And ironically, the research shows the people, who, the people who think they are not biased are the most biased because it's a lack of reflection. Absolutely. What would you say are the more common blockages to that reflection? Well, your own self-image is a, uh, our own self-image is a problem. Mm-hmm. So you will find, uh, you know, I am a liberal, um, I'm liberal, I'm open-minded, I'm tolerant. Mm-hmm. Therefore, bias is an issue for other people. Mm-hmm. Like lots of other people. The unbiased people. I mean, yeah. The biased people. The biased, the biased people. people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that, you know, our conscious, my conscious thoughts tell me I'm liberal, open-minded, tolerant. Mm-hmm. And actually getting evidence or get, getting a sensation or getting a reaction from somebody that I, I may be none of those things, as far mm-hmm. as they're concerned, is painful. Mm-hmm. So anyone who's done this kind of work in organizations knows that taking that awareness to people and to an extent challenging them with the fact that they have a bias perhaps in a certain direction is a very difficult process to engage with. There's a lot of resistance that comes up often. It depends how you get put the message across. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does depend how you put the message across. It's the same with anything. You've got, you need people to be engaged. Mm-hmm. And uh, standing in front of a room of people and berating them <laughs> three hours... <laughs> It's just not going to be fun, and then people and it should be fun. Actually, there's no reason why it shouldn't be fun. There's no reason why it shouldn't be engaging and enjoyable and educational, all of those things, and all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the making people feel ashamed of how they've made decisions in the past or some of the implicit attitudes they hold is not a way to progress. Mm-hmm. There's an exercise that people like doing it's, it's called about understanding your privilege or it's, it's an exercise like that mm-hmm. and so you get, you get everybody standing in a line and then you have to take a step forward so if you went to a private school take a step forward if you um if you had fewer than 10 interviews to get a job yes. take a step yes. forward and then basically everybody strings out in a line and uh kind of the all of the people who are white are the the top end of the line they're the mm-hmm. ones that progress the most and all the minorities are the bottom end of the line it's a powerful exercise mm-hmm. and when you see it done on the on the youtube videos it's powerful mm-hmm. done in a workplace it does more harm than good. It actually, I believe the research shows it makes biases worse because mm. actually you're making people feel ashamed. Yeah. And when people feel ashamed, we withdraw. Mm-hmm. And you want the opposite reaction. You want people to step in. Mm-hmm. And you want them to step in and start discussing these things in a way which is constructive. And an exercise like that actually has, research has shown actually, it does more harm than good. Mm-hmm. So we need to be careful about some of the things that we do in organisations which seem to be good on the surface but actually have little to, to back them up. Absolutely. I mean, we're dealing in a space here that, I mean, you name shame, other powerful emotions like fear come up. I mean, these these are difficult emotions for anyone to deal with on any given day. So what is it about an inclusive leader that takes them into that space more willingly? Is there a higher motivation? Are there any particular qualities that set individuals like this apart? And are those innate or can they be taught? Oh, they can be taught. Mm -hmm. they, They can be taught. We always underestimate, I think, the extent to which people want to do the right thing. The vast majority of people I come across are good, decent people, and, and we want to do the right thing. And you work, you, that should be our, our, the starting point. And we have a discussion here which may make you feel uncomfortable, but you need to hold the tension. Mm-hmm. Don't dismiss it. You need to hold the tension. And I think that level of self-awareness, that willingness to kind of understand oneself better in order to be a better leader is a, an important motivation, I think, for many people. But I think in terms of an inclusive leader... They're kind of boundary spanners. They're bridge builders mm. to a certain extent. So actually, I, I, so you can do it on the superficial dimensions like ethnicity, the color of the skin, and make sure that there are we're creating an inclusive team on, on dimensions like that and on gender. But also an inclusive leader will be building bridges with other locations 
we tend to have a bias towards people who are who are near us, mm. geographically near mm. us. Mm. So if you have part of your team is in America and you're based in London and you're there in New York and you're in London, actually build bridges with them. So span the boundary, but also between different functions. So if you're a broadcaster, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an engineer, um, actually it would be useful, but I have to interact with many people. So actually building bridges with other professions in the organisation to actually this conscious notion of a leader as a, as a boundary spanner. Mm-hmm. That helps too. Mm-hmm. As a leader, and, and we'll move on to the rest of the organization in a moment, but as a leader, taking this conscious approach to spanning boundaries and addressing personal biases and mm. kind of holding this space of awareness around these various areas, that is potentially exhausting? Or is this a rejuvenating and exhilarating process for them? I think the early, sta- the early stages of because one of the things we talk to people about is you need to pra- we, need, we need to practice these yeah, things. Yeah. So if you walk into the office in the morning or the workplace, your workplace, and you say hello to some people, you always say hello to some people, and you never say hello to other people. A little thing you can do is say hello to everybody mm. or say hello to nobody. Mm. There may be a reason why you don't say hello to them over there. Mm-hmm. And get over it. <laughs> a small thing like that is being noticed. Mm. And in a way, when you do that, you kind of want it to be noticed because you're sending a message to those individuals. Mm-hmm. But actually, it will make your team performance better by doing these small things. And so just kind of stepping out a little. And so in the early stages of learning any new habits, it's uncomfortable. Uh, we may forget it. But you need to be aware that's what I'm trying to do. So it is a long-term process regardless. Yeah. Well, so it's never ending, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's never ending. Yeah. The, the, I'm still trying. Mm-hmm. You know, I, the, the number of times I trip myself up, and uh, it's, it's not so much. It may not be so much to do with um, I'm deliberately trying to exclude people. It's just, it's just my. Um, we have an inclusive leader report, mm-hmm. and part of it is a personality questionnaire. So it's actually some of it is actually to do with kind of the way I am, mm-hmm. and the way I inter- interact with people, and that could have an impact. You know, it's just kind of, yeah, calm down, slow down, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And I, I know over the years that uh, I just have to keep reminding myself of doing these things when I'm in a group of people. Is it possible to go down a rabbit hole here? Just be just get stuck in the cycle of hyper self-awareness? And if I suppose it sounds from what you're saying that key is moving beyond self-criticism and yeah. shame. Yeah. Otherwise and, you just get stuck and in And compassion. Group, you need yeah. to say you're in compassion. Yeah, and that's what this idea about kind of criticizing oneself. Mm. It's a, that's where I am. Let's move on. Exactly. You know I mean? Yeah, sure. Uh, and I think going down the rabbit hole, I, I, I kind of get that, uh, but it doesn't last forever. Mm-hmm. You know, for some people, it doesn't last at all. I mean, some people don't even think about these at all. But mm-hmm. but the people who take it on board mm-hmm. actually do take it very seriously. I remember I was with a with the executive committee of one organisation and really great group of people and lovely to work with, actually quite shocked at some of the things that were happening in their organisation and some of the decisions they potentially were making. And I met them, and then a few months later, I came across the finance director again. He said, I'm still thinking about that, you know. I'm still thinking about it. And I thought, wow, that's just wonderful, Mm -hmm. you know. And uh, that he is conscious of it. And I I like to think, because he had a smile on his face when he was telling me, and he was making a serious point about his own personal reflections, but it was just something that he was now more aware of and he appreciated that and he was trying to do something about it. Is that self-reflection, that awareness, is that itself an aptitude that needs to be trained and developed in order for this kind of transformational process to be successful? Yeah. Uh, does it need to be trained? Yeah. Or is the assumption that everyone has access to it already and it's about just opening access to that self-reflection? Yeah. yeah. I think it's more, it's more that, I think. Okay. That uh, people just need to be... So 
And it's just in the moment. Because mm. actually, mm. you've got to say, I'm going to make a decision. I made a decision about you. Mm-hmm. Right? I've only just met you. I, I, kind of, I made a decision about you. I dare you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, all I need to do is say, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. I yeah. said I was going to be fair. Okay. That, that moment of reflection, step mm. back. Step back. Let's do this properly. And he stepped back in again. See, that moment of reflection, just pausing. Mm. There's two things here, actually. One, you set the intention to be fair. Let's say this is an interview. Mm-hmm. So when I meet Andrew, then I'm going to be fair. Mm-hmm. I'm going to treat him fairly. All the, all the candidates, I'm going to treat them fairly. So I make a snap decision. I'm just about to go to uh, give in to that decision. And then I think, hang on a minute. You said you're Candola. You said you're going to be fair. Right. Step back. Give him a chance. That moment, that's all it takes. Mm just to remind ourselves, because we can change that quickly. And that's a very effective thing you can do, and it doesn't take any time at all. Mm-hmm. Where does responsibility for this lie within an organisation? We've spoken about leadership, but is this something for everyone to work on? You spoke that about one of the competencies in inclusive leadership, for example, is creating that culture. Mm. I know it, leaders obviously have a powerful influence on that, but, but culture really is up to the group as well. Yeah. So does this kind of engagement with inclusion and diversity in a harmonious fashion rely on everyone in the organization buying in? Yeah. Or are you looking for a kind of a, a tipping point, a, a critical mass? The leaders have the most important role. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, we all have a role to play, mm-hmm. every single one of us. And when we see things, so the, the leader will set the context. This is the kind of set of values that I want to see expressed in this organization. This is the type of behavior that I want to see us engaging in. And... If I see anything where people are stepping out of line, there are consequences. Mm-hmm. That sets the tone. And then beyond that, it's up to everybody in the group then to tell one another when we're, when we're stepping out of line because the leader can't be everywhere on every occasion. So actually then it's up to all of us then to uphold the values that the leader has expressed and endorsed. Mm-hmm. What about the functions in the business that are almost specifically tied to people development, HR, L&D? Do they have a larger role to play or what are the, the primary ways in which they can manifest this kind of development? The principal way, actually, is by making sure that if you've got a group of people who are kind of becoming more aware of the importance of fair decision-making and some of the biases that can intrude, and we've talked about some of those things, mm-hmm. if you make people more aware of those, then your protocols that you use for your processes need to contain these mm-hmm. instructions and mm-hmm. devices. And you need to have things in the environment which remind them of the way they should be operating. And too often, I think, people reach um, people don't do that. Well, they don't do the both, actually. Sometimes you find people put a lot of emphasis on kind of getting the a process right without training the line managers. Mm-hmm. Well, they train the line managers and leave their processes exactly the same as they were before. Mm-hmm. But you, you actually do need to bring the two things together. Mm-hmm. So we know that um, if you want to attract a wider range of candidates to your organisation, we know that if you're where you advertise, the words you use in adver- advertisements, the way you describe your organisation, all of those things have an impact. But it mm-hmm. takes time for people to kind of educate themselves in terms of what good practices. Mm-hmm. Instead of kind of outsourcing this to headhunters, you need to be aware yourself about the sorts of things that do and don't work in terms of attracting. Mm-hmm. But that's effort. But then you need to build that into your processes mm-hmm. themselves. You mentioned earlier intention and you were speaking about kind of the personal process in the moment when working and engaging with your mm. biases. Is that a, a guiding principle for any organization that really wants to get the maximum value out of the diversity within its workforce? Mm. Is to have that intention mm. really front of mind within yeah. the organization? Yeah. Yeah, and it's an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. 
And once you have that intention, then we're going to, I'm going to treat everybody in an inclusive way in this mm. meeting. And just setting that as an, everybody setting that as an intention then mm. makes a big difference. And, and people sometimes think that being inclusive takes time. In fact, in the work that we've done, we've actually found that the teams that are more inclusive actually see their leaders as, as being more efficient and effective decision makers. It's, so it's not about going through people one by one. It's like, here's an issue. What do we think? So people all pile in. They feel they've got permission. They can pile in. Mm -hmm. So it's quicker and mm -hmm. it's more effective. Mm -hmm. And it's about calling things out when we don't see them, when we see things going on that we don't particularly like. So we've spoken a lot about what happens within the organization mm. and how it can change. But I alluded at the beginning to this kind of broader context of what's happening you know, for us as in this country, in Europe, in the world, this, this conflict between globalization, which is almost this enforced diversity and inclusive pressure. And what seems to be a response to that, these sociopolitical uh, stretches into, seems to be greater polarization. There's this real sense that there's more conflict between people drawing lines on, on principle of difference. Mm. So that's a sense that, that a lot of people feel, and there's a lot mm. of tension attached to that. Do you think that's making it more difficult for businesses and organizations and even just individuals in general to take those kind of intentional steps towards being more inclusive and more connected to people in diverse situations? Yeah, it's a really good question. I don't think the current context makes any difference at all. Mm. So people will say, for example, that on ethnicity, that Brexit, Right. And the, all of the discussion about migrants and immigration and all that kind of stuff, that's just made the situation for minorities even worse. Mm -hmm. And the police have reported, um, you know, a spike in race hate crimes and that. So I get that. Kind of the more explicit expression we get more of. Mm -hmm. But in terms of uh, decision making, who gets promoted, who, who gets recruited, there's been no change on that over many years. Mm -hmm. So actually Brexit is kind of something that's going on on the surface. Mm -hmm. And it's being, I think, it's being used as an excuse by people to say that's the reason why we haven't made so much change on ethnicity. Brexit, I would argue, in terms of the deeper attitudes, has made no difference on this whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And if you take those CV studies, you know, where you've got the two application forms identical in all respects and you just change the names, so one's a majority-sounding name, one's a minority-sounding name. Mm -hmm. The University of Oxford published a study earlier this year which showed that the results this year are the same as they were 50 years ago. <laughs> So it hasn't changed. You know what I mean? It's just not mm, changing. Mm. And we like to latch onto something. It's because of Brexit. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's because of us. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, Brexit gets used. Brexit gets used to excuse all sorts of things. But <laughs> but not. But on this occasion, I don't think we can. I don't think it, it, it seems like it's a logical thing to be doing, but it isn't. Is that just partly a, a human, a natural human response that we tend to project our own perceived limitations or biases? externally mm. to either a macro issue, you know, like globalization or Brexit or, yeah. uh, or onto somebody else. So yeah. it's not me, it's you. Yeah. And, and it's not me, it's yeah. That's a common thing in, in organizations yeah. and, and a real kind of hurdle to development and moving through these kinds yeah. of issues. Yeah. And actually the, um, I think the way that the debate went during the campaign about immigration and migrants mm. and all this kind of stuff and the emphasis the emphasis on race the very negative discussion i think for some people it uh, who who don't hold those views it mm. was a concern mm -hmm. i think at another level it was a comfort mm. because we could say yeah prejudice people prejudice people right <laughs> they're older they're uneducated mm. and they live in the north of england 
<laughs> and I'm none of those things, so I cannot be a prejudiced mm, person. Mm. So it's back to this thing about self-identity. Yeah. That uh, it was able to say, yeah, they are prejudiced yeah. people, and I am not one of them, therefore mm, I cannot mm. be prejudiced. And so that's why I think it was a comfort, and it, and it prevents this kind of lack of... It prevents this kind of lack of reflection because I don't need to reflect because there's older, uneducated northern people mm -hmm. who think like this. Mm -hmm. and, and it's because I think I've developed a new hobby, <laughs> which is that um, to pick up an examples of biased thinking by people who are kind of on the kind of more liberal end of the political spectrum. Because right. it's, it's on, the, on the conservative end, you step over the line, even marginally, you're pretty far on the line, it's like, bang, the social media be all over it. Mm -hmm. If you're on the other end of it, yeah, they're actually treated very leniently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so you kind of think, yeah, you know, so-and-so said this, can you believe that? And you know, well, actually, um, <laughs> you know, that some people who you would admire actually said things which displayed their... They didn't use language. Their, their language may have been more careful. Mm -hmm. But they... The way they were thinking displayed biases in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. So just finally to almost wrap up on this, I mean, is there a danger that we become too focused on this? I mean, there's a real value and necessity of becoming aware of diversity and our own biases and yeah. the way these are hampering our yeah. engagement with people and also limiting other people's potential yeah. development. Is there a potential that people can get too wrapped up in this and get too sensitive? Yeah. And actually become almost paralyzed yeah. by the fear of saying something that's offensive oh. or doing something that's offensive. Or, yeah. 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 Well, the, the, I need to come back to this thing about what this is. Because yeah. sure. no, I think it's really important mm -hmm. because if we haven't defined what this is, what mm -hmm. we're trying to achieve, actually, that, I think it can become problematic. And that, but I think this, this whole thing about um, you can't say that. How dare you? You can't mm -hmm. say that. Don't you ever say that again. You say that again. And sometimes it would be something quite, it would be something that, that we'd all find offensive. Mm -hmm. And other times, you kind of think, it just leave you scratching your head and think, what, what was so bad about that? Yeah. Uh, and you go, right, I'm not saying anything. I'm actually not going to say anything. And on the surface then, it looks like our biases have been scrubbed away. In fact, I think in effect, what, what psychologists have found is this attitude of suppressing discussion Mm -hmm. is in fact creating new biases. Mm. Or it's a new way of the biases being deepened. Because mm -hmm. actually not discussing these things doesn't make the attitude go away. Because we're not talking about them, and you can't challenge me on my biases, for example, it means that my biases stay the same. They may possibly even get worse because I'll have a resentment. I can't talk about these things in the workplace anymore. Now, it's difficult to talk about these things in the workplace. I get that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, not talking about them is not a solution. Yeah. Back to the point about what this is. Now, if this is about achieving greater diversity at all levels in the organization and it's about representation, then that will be problematic and there will be a backlash to it. Mm -hmm. If this, however, is about creating a fair environment and a fair workplace and we want to do whatever we can, everything we can to make this as fair as we can uh, and so people will genuinely be recruited, selected, promoted, developed, on their capabilities, then there's never a problem with that. Mm. Just to be clear, there's never a problem, there's no potential of getting too lost and becoming too sensitive and becoming, or becoming too afraid of crossing the line. Well, because actually what we're saying is, this is actually to make sure that we recruit, select, promote, develop people on the basis of their talent. Mm -hmm. Anything that gets in the way of that, we will actually sure. try and overcome. Sure. If it's our processes... If it's our own individual attitude, it's the way that people in a team allow um, some of their teammates get away with quite disgraceful behaviour. Mm. 
that's actually preventing us from making the most of our people. Now, if that's what this is, yeah. and people don't object to that, there was a wonderful study that was carried out where people had to, they had to fill out a questionnaire. Right? They had to fill out a questionnaire. If I witnessed a racist incident, I would feel, and that's right, how they feel, and the action I take would be, right, that's what they had, they're filling out this questionnaire. And then the experimenter actually is a minority individual, right, and bangs into somebody as they're walking out of the room. They bang into somebody who's a, who's a confederate, they're a stooge, and the bangs into them. And as the person walks out, the stooge goes, ha, ah, bloody packies. And everybody carries on filling out their questionnaires. <laughs> <laughs> witness something this is how we feel and if I uh, and this is this is the action and nobody took the action they said they would take if they witnessed it now some of it of course is actually what you what did you think about you just witnessed mm-hmm. so this is thing about just raising awareness about what's going on around us we did a survey last year looking at um, racial incidents in the workplace and we found that the most effective action you could take to deal with racist incidents in the workplace we're actually dealing with it in the moment don't go to your line manager. Don't go to... Definitely go to HR. That was the least effective thing you could do. Mm-hmm. But you deal with it at the moment. The people who are most likely to deal with it in the moment were white. The people who are most likely to deal with it in the moment were white. The issue was they didn't actually recognise the more subtle forms of behaviour as being racist. So it's an mm-hmm. educational point mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to you're all racist. Do you, mm-hmm. you see what I mean? Yeah. And so if this is about creating an environment where people are selected assessed, appraised, and developed and promoted on the basis of their talent. That's what this is. And then we will actually make sure that everything we can do to ensure that this happens, then people don't have a problem with that. Yeah. If the issue is actually where we started, we have a target. Yeah. It's a, well, what's fair about that? And you could end up in a situation where all the people who were selected are of a particular group. And you say, well, that's just the way it falls sometimes. Yeah. And then finally, in working with this, and taking this into organizations and taking this to people and trying to develop this mature, robust approach to creating fairness and inclusion and getting a lot of buy-in in that. Mm. Am I understanding correctly that there's some work to be done in depersonalizing this, mm. in, in, in kind of pointing to these patterns or these trends and saying, well, it's not because you are this kind of person that you have these kind of biases that we need to fix you. Mm. It's more about we all have biases of mm. some kind mm. or another. And it's about being able to connect with them in an accepting way mm. and then move on. Yeah. Yeah. And to keep the discussion going. Yeah. So keep talking about this in situations that are, are relevant. So you might have a session to talk about bias in the workplace. But then just before you do your um, promotion panels, remind people of what was covered. Mm. I remember doing something with, a, with a, a law firm in the city big law firm in the city and what they found from their data that what they found was on a forced distribution on the appraisal system so you know only x could get the top rating and then x had to be lower rated i'm not a fan of those systems but this is what they found and what they found was that men were far more likely to be in that top 15 20 percent and we went uh, i went to a group of partners talk about because the next round was coming up we just thought this is what you found last year Mm. why do you think it happened and they said well and we were brainstorming this is one of the exercises we're brainstorming so well um yeah, the women weren't good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's possible. Or what else? Uh, maybe it's because uh, anyway, a whole host of reasons. Mm. And then uh, the whole number of reasons come out. It could be that you're biased. Mm. And uh, they went, no, it can't be that. <laughs> and so that we're, uh, so we're brainstorming. Mm. So as a possibility, and they were, okay, put it up. Mm-hmm. So put it up there, and we had a discussion then about how it could be operating. And then what they found was, they, this was like a week or two before they were doing it. And the, ne- the data that came out afterwards showed that the gap had closed. 
So not setting a target. It's not about this. It's just making people aware that mm. we and, and about how you can, you know, the, the, some of the things I was talking about earlier about attributions. You can do it in a way which people will accept as long as there's some logic behind it and they can understand. And it's not about replacing one set of biases with another set of biases because mm. they just happen to be acceptable at this moment in time. Mm. Bina Kandola, thank you very much. It's I really enjoyed that conversation yeah, and thank, thank you. you for your insights. No, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more on our guests and the resources described in this podcast, please refer to the information section of your podcast player. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to receive updates and latest episodes of Learning Rewired, brought to you by Headspring.